I'm going to be preaching the month of August, doing a series on the book of Joshua. And uh, so not a lot of weeks, but we can get this done. And so you have in your bulletin notes for this morning. Uh, you know the book of Joshua, uh, I, most of you do. It's a pretty simple book. And uh, nation of Israel, they come out of Egypt under Moses' leadership. Been enough movies made about that, and everybody's familiar with that event. And so they go through the wilderness up to the promised land, which has been promised to them. They get to the border, and they kind of wimp out. They chicken out. The land's full of giants, and they're kind of whining about it. And God says, okay. And so they wander around in the desert for in the wilderness for 40 years until all those who were supposed to go into the promised land die and a younger generation comes. And so Moses dies, Joshua takes over and he leads Israel into the promised land to conquer it and to drive out uh, the enemies. And so I'm going to look at the book of Joshua and make application to JBC. And uh, way back 40 years ago, we had a, a little party on a Saturday and I encourage people to come, and I took a bunch of rocks that were the size of a softball, a little bit bigger, and I spray-painted them Oregon State Orange and uh, gave it to a bunch of people. I said, here's what I want you to do. You drive that way, you drive that way. Every road out of Jefferson, we assigned someone to it, and I said, drive exactly 30 minutes by the speed limit, pitch the rock out the window. <laughs> and that's our promised land. That's the area that we are going to conquer for God. We did that years ago, and then I took that border and sent it into a professional uh, company that does things for companies like Pepsi and various things that are going to move into an area and start a business, and so they want to study what's there. And so I had them do that for us and discovered there was over 100,000 people in our geographical area, and only 14% of them went to church. Did you know that's less now than it was back 40 years ago? Fewer people go to church now than did then, so there's lots of people all around us. And so our goal is to conquer it, not in the sense of, you know, with a sword, but with the sword of the Spirit, so people will become part of the family of God. The Bible's clear. If your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're not going to live with God in eternity after you die. And our job is to see people transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son by our ministry. I got some bad news for you. I just discovered it. The clock doesn't work. So I don't know what time we're getting out, okay? So just relax. I have no control over that. We'll try to, we'll try to do it right. Um, number one in your notes, God gave a clear command to the nation of Israel to conquer the promised land. He gave a clear command. He'd done it before, and they messed up, but now they're starting over with this command. And uh, <laughs> it made you nervous there, did I? You're going to fix the clock. Okay, good man. Uh, Joshua, Joshua 1.10, Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. God is giving it to you. Here's your responsibility. Possess it. Conquer it. Uh, God is with you, and he will work through you to make it happen. And so the whole book of Joshua is about that, conquering. Number two, the land will ultimately be conquered by Jesus and his army, the church. And so way back then, there was Joshua, and we've had history of Israel ever since, still kind of struggling over there, over who owns the land and what the borders are. And it's much smaller than it will be uh, once the final date comes. But 
Uh, at some point, there's going to be an event called the rapture. That's where we believers, our bodies are changed in a moment, and twinkling of an eye, and poof, off to heaven we go. That's going to be so cool. I think it's going to be this afternoon. <laughs> we'll see. I always hope every day is the day. But, uh, and then we'll be there for about seven years, and then uh, during that time is what's called the Great Tribulation. Then we come back with Jesus, and he's going to whip the devil and everybody associated with him and put his kingdom on the earth, and we're going to be with him. And uh, Revelations 19, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... He who sat on it called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. His clothes are the robe uh, dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen and white uh, and cl uh, white and clean, that's us, the church, we're coming back with him. We're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We're following him on white horses. Now, I think I've told you this before. I'm riding a motorcycle. I don't like horses. And I think, I don't know, maybe Jesus will let me do that. Uh, anyway, the rest of you are on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that when it, uh, with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. He will come to this earth and he will establish his capital in the city of Jerusalem. Um, and he will rule the whole world for a thousand years, and we will rule with him as his church, as his bride. But in the meantime, we're to be doing that little bit by little bit, each church where they're located, conquering that geographical area that they're in. Number three, the enemy is Satan and his demons who are trying to control God's land and his people. So we're not conquering people, we're conquering the kingdom of darkness. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and evil forces, and, and they're, they're wanting to destroy God and his kingdom and his people to control it. Uh, right from the very beginning, Adam and Eve were deceived by the devil, and uh, he's been controlling the world ever since. When he fell, he took a third of the angels with him, and they, we call them demons, and they're making a mess of the world, and our job is to conquer them. Now, when you read the book of Joshua, one of the things that bothers people is that ten times in the book, it says that they conquered a city and they killed everybody in the city, women and children and dogs and pets and goldfish. I'm adding that last part. But anything that breathed, they killed it. You think, whoa, that seems a little over the top. Why would God do such a thing? So I'm going to just, this is a sort of a parenthesis in this message, but it's kind of good to understand it if you, I'm going to do it quick. If you want a full explanation, someone who does it wonderfully is Matt Bain when he teaches his class, uh, and he's got it really, really easy to understand. So I'm going to give you the quick view, and if you want more information, you can. Number four, in the early years, demons had children with humans. You read that, ah, wow, that's weird. Yeah, it is. But that happened. Demons those who were doing the will of God had offspring, children, uh, from human uh, wives, as it were. Uh, Genesis 6-4, the Nephilim. What are the Nephilim? That's these kids. Were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God, the sons of God, that's uh, angels, in this case demons, came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. And so you remember when 
Israel left Egypt under Moses' leadership, and they get up to the promised land, and they're supposed to go in and conquer it. Why didn't they? Well, because the land was full of giants. He said, we look like grasshoppers compared with those dudes. We don't have a chance. Well, those giants, this land, the devil is wanting to control it because he knows it's God's land, and so he has these half-demon, half-people inhabitants of the land. And so God wants them destroyed, and he did that once with the flood, and he's doing it again now. Number five, today demons will masquerade as people. They will usually be in positions of power and influence. Now, you have to be careful with this one because it would be real easy to look at your mother-in-law and say, I think she's a demon. Uh, You don't want to do that. But the fact that there are some people going around that are literally demons masquerading as a people is a fact. And so they will exercise all kinds of influence and they will introduce what is called doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons, things that people begin to believe is true. Abortion, that's a doctrine of demons. They propagate that everywhere. And there's a number of others as well. Hebrews 13, 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now this is the positive side. God's angels looking like people, and it says, you know, be nice to strangers. It might be an angel. I remember several times when our kids were little, we would uh, pick up a hitchhiker or do something for someone that was in trouble that was a stranger, and afterwards they would say, Dad, Dad, I think that was an angel. <laughs> Maybe. You never know. Uh, and so if angels do that, certainly demons do. First, Second Corinthians eleven fourteen. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants, that is, his demons, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Servants of righteousness. You know, there's a lot of preachers running around that are really demons, propagating doctrines of demons by the things that they teach. Daniel 11.36 is talking about the Antichrist. You're all aware that there's going to be a guy that's going to come. He's going to be the ruler of the world attempt to, and he's going to look like a regular person, but he's going to be a demon, as it were, under the influence of the devil, controlling the world. And then the king will do as he pleases, Daniel 11.36, and he will exalt. This is the Antichrist. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. That's when Jesus comes back with us, for that which is decreed will be done. Ezekiel 28 describes the fall of the devil, and it gives him a name called the king of Tyre. That's because at the time, the king of that nation of Tyre was indeed the devil masquerading as a person ruling that nation. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the biro, the onyx, the jasper, uh, the lapis lazuli. I hate that word, the turquoise and the emerald and the gold and the workmanship of your setting sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub. You were the anointed cherub. This is the king attire, as it were. Who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until, until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trades, you were internally filled with violence. You sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones. That's the fall of Lucifer, the number one angel of God. And uh, at the time that this is written in the book of Ezekiel, he was 
masquerading as a person, the king of Tyre. Matthew 13, Jesus tells this story. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man. This is Jesus himself here, as he tells his story. who sowed good seed in his field. Good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy, that would be the devil, came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? And he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there's the enemy, the devil, and there's Jesus. And in the world today, there's the wheat, the sons, the children of God, and there's the tares, those that the devil is controlling and working in. Number six, lost people are controlled by the devil and his demons, and he wants to hang on to them. They're controlled, controlled. Every lost person that you know is controlled by the devil. Uh, They think they're running their own life. They think they're making their own choices, but they are uh, puppets, as it were, of the evil one. Second Corinthians 4, 4, in whose case the God of this world, that's speaking of the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they can't, they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. The gospel makes no sense to them. It doesn't compute. Uh, and so they reject it, not because they really want to because it makes no sense because the devil has worked on their mind to such an extent that it makes no sense. Second Timothy 2.26, that they may come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Having been held captive by the devil to do his will. Ephesians 2, you, all of you who were lost at one point in your life, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So every lost person you know is in the kingdom of darkness, controlled by the devil, doing his will, blinded by him. They can't understand the truth of the gospel. And so the question is, how do they ever come to Christ? God has to do a work in their heart, in their mind, in their life for that to happen. And he uses us in that process. Number seven, Jesus died to set the captives free. He died on the cross and specifically says he did that so that those who are held captive by the devil can be set free from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1.13, he rescued us, Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Amen. That you're, you're God's son, his daughter. You have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Luke 4, 18, Jesus speaking here, he said, He, God the Father, sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Number eight, the church is God's army to conquer the domain of darkness and to set the captives free. So here's an important point. Uh, evangelism, reaching lost people. We tend to think that that's an individual, personal, private activity and endeavor when in fact the 
emphasis in the Bible is that it is a team sport, if I can use that word. It's what we do collectively. Together, we conquer the geographic area, not a bunch of individual uh, people just doing their thing. I mean, we all have our responsibility and we witness, and, but the power that God's going to work through is the church, His army, and our responsibility is to conquer the land that He's given us. 2 Timothy 2, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. You know why people aren't involved? Uh, they're entangled in the affairs of everyday life. They're busy with stuff that has no eternal value whatsoever so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Number nine, the church that is successfully conquering is very unified in purpose and method. The church that is conquering, that is accomplishing what God has given them to do has some characteristics in it. Number one characteristic is that they are unified, they're functioning as one in purpose and in method. So if you say, Book of Joshua, what is it in the book of Joshua that everybody has heard of? Jericho, first city that they conquer. It's a great story. You ever read that story and think, why did God come up with that? I mean, if you had been during the time of Joshua and God says to you, you come up a plan, come up with a plan to conquer Jericho, would you have come up with that plan? No, it's stupid. You say, you call God's plan stupid. I'm not calling God's plan stupid from God's perspective. I'm calling it from our perspective because we don't think like that. March around the city and blow a bunch of horns? you got to be kidding me. So why? Why, 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 why? Why did God come up with that incredibly? No, non, it just doesn't make sense. Well, because he wanted them to know and us to know today that they had their job given to him, but he did the work, really. Joshua 6, Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out, no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. I, God, have given Jericho into your hand. So if we're going to conquer this geographical area around us, 30 minutes in every direction, how's that going to happen? God's going to do the work, and he's going to give people, transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. He's going to work through us. He's going to give us things to do, like march around the wall, blow horns, etc. But it's going to be clear he does the work. He does the work. So who does he do the work for? Why did he cause the walls to fall down? Uh, see, I've given Jericho into your hand with his king, the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once. And you weren't supposed to say a word. No whispering, no talking, no talking on the cell phone. You march around the city, total silence. And uh, you'll do it for six days. On the seventh, priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. The priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. The wall of the city will fall down flat. Now, if you had heard that, you'd said, yeah, right. You're going to be kidding me. It fell down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead, and they conquered it. So, do you know what I would have done had I been there when it was over? 
I'd say, wow, this worked good. Let's do it again. Let's franchise this. City-conquering technique. Ah. Did they ever do that again? Never. Not ever again. Do you know there are a lot of churches that are plateaued, are declining? Do you, what, do you know what their motto is? We've never done it that way before. Let's do it the way we've always done it. So if you're going to learn something from Joshua and the nation of Israel is methods don't matter. Methods don't matter. It's God's blessing that matters. God does the work. So who does he do it for? Philippians 1.27. I'm going to be doing a study on this this fall through the fall of the book Philippians, been a great book. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourself worthy in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the gospel. That means God will use you if you are worthy of the gospel. Now, if you're not, he won't. What does it take to be worthy of the gospel? What does it uh, take for you to say, for God to say about you, okay, I'll do a great thing through you because you're worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So, God says, march around the city one time, don't say a word. That's what they did, because God said to. Do it for six days. March around the city. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. People on the wall are probably heckling him and trash-talking him. No response. Don't say a word. Six days. Seventh day, do it seven times. Blow the trumpets. The wall falls down flat. They were one people, one army, with one purpose, obeying God, Number 10, methods are necessary. God doesn't bless methods. He blesses unity. A circle that put a bunch of stars around it. That is the fundamental truth for churches that are doing the will of God successfully. And so, you know, a lot of churches, not this church, people say, I think we should do it this way. I think we should do it that way. And there's all this angst about Methods. God doesn't bless methods. He blesses unity. Number 11, some of the most gifted and resourceful people accomplish very little for God in evangelism because of their lack of humility. Let's see, we'll back up a little bit of this in two sections. Some of the most gifted and resourceful people well, you know, there's a lot of people that got amazing intelligence and amazing education and creative minds and resourceful and passionate. And some of those individuals, they don't do anything for God, really, because of their lack of humility and willingness to work in unity with their church family. And so when you look across our country, in our country, we have a, uh, a disease in the church, and I, I call it, and you've heard me say this before, I call it the John Wayne cult. That is, I have my horse and my gun, I don't need you. I can do it myself, thank you very much. I'll do it my way. God doesn't bless independent uh, 
endeavors, regardless of how intelligent they may be. He doesn't bless methods. He blesses unity. When the church is unified, one mind striving together for the gospel, then he works. And when there's a bunch of individuals doing their own thing, he doesn't. Number 12, it doesn't take very many mavericks in a church to make it ineffective in conquering the enemy. And so you remember the story after they conquer the city, one dude, we'll talk about him next week, AI, takes some stuff that he wasn't supposed to take, just one. And next city, they, it's a f- total flop just because of one. And so let me look at another aspect of that failure that we sometimes neglect to see. Joshua 7, 3, they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up. They've spied out Ai, the next city. It's just a little old town. We don't need to take everybody up. Don't let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men. Why? And pursued them from the gate as far as... Shibaram and struck them down on the descent so the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And then they had a bit of a prayer meeting, and then Joshua 8, 1. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people. Take all the people. All the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king, his people, his city, and his land. I, God, have given it to you. Why? All the people, the unity, the obedience to God. John 17, 18, Jesus is getting ready to be crucified, and he prays what's called the high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world, speaking of the disciples. Then in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is the disciples, the eleven, but for those who believe in me through their word, that would be us. Jesus prays for us over 2,000 years ago that they may all be one, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. See, the standard of unity is the unity of the Trinity. How unified is the Trinity? That's how unified we ought to be. I pray, Father, that you will make them one, even as you and I are one, that they also may be in us. Here's what will happen, so that the world may believe, so that the world may believe. So what's it going to take for us to conquer our geographical area around us? Not methods. I mean, we use methods, but do you know why we do a method? It's so that we can all do the same thing. I would say, here's what we're going to do. And the reason we say that is because then we can do it together. It's like marching around the the city of Jericho. Everybody does it together with one mind and with one heart, striving together. But there's always those individuals that say, ah, I think we would do better to do it this way. I think I'll go do it this way. I don't have to work with you. And we think it's fine. The problem is, is that God blesses unity. He blesses oneness. He blesses those who serve together, walk together, strive together for the faith of the gospel. And we live in America, and we like to do our own thing on our own time clock. And so Jericho would have not been conquered. God wouldn't have 
done what he did had the nation of Israel said, ah, I'm only going to march around it once during the week. I don't have to do this everyday thing. It only takes a few. So you want to be part of the work of God and to conquer and to do a great work and reach many, many people with the gospel. It's a simple thing of being a functioning part of your church family, a functioning part of your church family, uh, that we would be a unified whole striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's a simple question to ask, am I? Am I or am I sort of a off here doing my own thing? It's an easy question to ask. Did you know that when uh, Paul introduced communion, when he talked about it in 1 Corinthians 11, he was talking to a church that was fussing. Some of them said, you know, I think that we ought to follow Paul. Another group said, no, 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 not Paul, Peter. We're going to follow Peter. Another group said, no, no, Apollos, he's the one that's got it together. So the church was sort of at odds. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, when you take communion, you need to make sure you examine your life and get rid of that uh, attitude, that independence, that division, that lack of unity, and repent of that. And then when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you do it as a unified whole. If you don't, God will discipline. And Paul actually says, some of you are sick. You got the flu, you got the cold, some of you got cancer, whatever, because you're destroying his body, and I'm going to destroy yours if you do that. So we're going to take communion now, and when you do that, it would be good to say, who am I? Where am I? What's my attitude? How am I plugged in? Am I really wanting to serve God? Um, and just make the commitment as you eat the bread and drink the cup. Say, Jesus, you transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son, and I want to be part of rescuing people uh, from an eternity in hell. And we can do that together, not as individuals. Let's pray. Father, we love you very much. We pray that as we take communion now, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we would do it as an act of remembrance of what you did so that we can live with you forever. And as the Father sent you, Lord Jesus, into the world, you've, you've sent us, not individually, but collectively. I pray that we would function in unity and love, abounding in love for each other, Lord, focused on the same thing, striving together with one mind and one heart for the gospel. You bless unity. We want to be like the nation of Israel marching around Jericho. And as we do, you will conquer the land for us, through us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.